Pickaxe. So this stream is going to be kind of interesting because I think that for those of you that are like relatively familiar with our work and have questions about Ayurveda, I think it's going to be fantastic. And for those of you who don't really know too much about Ayurveda, you may be a little bit lost. So, um, you know, one of the challenges that we have is that we'll teach a little bit about Ayurveda, but Ayurveda is like, it's a big system, right? So it's a system that's been developed for thousands of years. If you want to understand Ayurveda from start to finish, it's like a five-year education, like full-time medical education. And that's just the end of school, right? So then you start to practice and you learn a lot about nuances and things like that. So we introduce Ayurveda, um, you know, in a basic way. And there's like a lot more information about it in Dr. K's guide. But uh, I thought what we would do today is actually like explain some of the more detailed or nuanced things, because a lot of the way that I talk about Ayurveda is very simplified and may also be incorrect, to be blunt, um, because I'm not actually a trained Ayurvedic physician. I'm someone who started studying Ayurveda at the age of 21, studied it sort of like informally. Um, and then, you know, I've studied it for a long time, but I'm essentially an amateur. And the interesting, the cool thing about being an amateur is that there's a lot of traditional, uh, there's a lot of stuff in Ayurveda that has become like shaped over time. Um, and they've actually like lost sight of like a lot of it. So the biggest example of this is like psychiatry and mental health. So if you look at Ayurveda, there's uh, to my knowledge, really only one Ayurvedic hospital in India anyway, and arguably the world that specializes in psychiatry. I've only been able to find one. There may be more. Um, so, so it's kind of interesting because like, even if you look at some of the old texts on Ayurveda, the, you know, two of the major texts on Ayurveda, Jarak Samhita and Sushrut Samhita will sort of acknowledge that when they were written, there were like Ayurvedic psychiatrists. And that if you want to learn about that branch, you should read this third dude's text. The challenge is that it appears that that third dude's text has been sort of like lost over time. So I think that there's a lot of room for development of Ayurvedic perspectives on mental health. And there's another kind of important reason why the Ayurvedic perspective on mental health is like a little bit lacking, is that mental health and like the way that the mind work works was actually more traditionally like a part of yoga as opposed to the system of medicine. So this is kind of like thinking about, you know, we have psychology and we have psychiatry and psychology is like a basic science uh, that studies the mind and psychiatry is a branch of medicine, right? So it's about the application and pathology of the mind. And so in that same way, in the Eastern system, you had the Ayurvedic folks who were medical professionals and then you had the yogis who were like sort of the basic science, here's how the mind works. So a lot of what we would call Ayurvedic psychiatry is actually found in like yogic texts. So this is kind of all a roundabout way of saying, you know, I think that what I'm talking about has some merit. And at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm not actually like formally trained in it. So you got to take it with a grain of salt. Okay. So. Let's kind of start off with this. So we saw, so what our structure today is going to be, we're going to look at a couple of Reddit posts. And I love these Reddit posts because, you know, I think they speak to deficiencies in what we've explained so far. So like sometimes when we'll teach about Ayurveda, because I do simplify things, there's like a lot of people who are like, wait, but there's stuff missing here. And you're absolutely right. So there's absolute deficiencies in what we've shared with you. There may even be deficiencies in my learning. I'm not sure which one is, you know, more accurate. 
But so today what we're going to do is like do a deeper dive into like a couple of subtle concepts around Ayurvedic doshas. And more importantly, we're going to explain like doshic combinations. Okay. And, and the way that we're going to kind of explain this stuff is going to be like actually more from like a corporate consulting standpoint. So one of the things that I do is corporate consulting. So I'll go to a company and I'll teach them about Ayurveda because the basic idea that I'll, I'll share with them is that, you know, not all people are the same. And if you look at Western psychology, like Western psychology, I know it sounds kind of weird, but sort of has the assumption that all people are the same. So if you look at like psychiatry, they will diagnose a person with depression and the depression is a disease that is independent of the person. Right. If you look at like something like cancer, like cancer is an independent process that can affect people, but is not intertwined with the person. And so we've taken that medical aspect, which also has to do with like, you know, was informed like our system of science and medicine was heavily informed by things like, um, you know, microbiology, where there's like an agent that causes an infection and the agent is independent of the person. And we took that idea of like disease as an independent process uh, that we found in Western medicine, uh, in like, in, sorry, physical medicine. And we also applied that paradigm to psychology and psychiatry, where we said anxiety is an independent process. You are you and the anxiety is over here and the anxiety affects you. The two are not actually intertwined. So Ayurveda is a little bit different, and Ayurveda says that you can't have a disease outside of a person, that there are specific aspects of your doshic balance which will affect the way that the disease manifests within you. And there's some really interesting support for this scientific hypothesis, I mean, this Ayurvedic hypothesis. So for example, if you look at like the way that we diagnose depression, there are essentially three types of depression. And like, this is like, according to Western science, okay, there is an anxious depression, which is like depression that's characterized by insomnia, restlessness, fidgeting, rumination, a lot of thoughts. And then there's a neurovegetative depression, which is characterized by hypersomnia, weight gain, low energy, difficulty moving, and like, Thoughts that sort of aren't all over the place, but focus on one thing in sort of a sluggish and rigid way. And it's kind of weird because literally if you look at the diagnostic criteria for depression, it can include weight loss or weight gain, hypersomnia or insomnia, and not moving a whole lot or moving too much. And if you just kind of think about it logically, like those sound like opposite ends of manifestations, right? Like... It's not like you get, you know, back pain and back pleasure as part of rheumatoid arthritis. It's not like you get, you know, fever and hypothermia as part of an infection. You know, usually it's like, it's kind of bizarre, but like two polar opposites are not the same disease. Like it's kind of like so simple, but that's the way that our Western medicine has evolved. And there's a third lesser known type of depression, which is called depression with anger attacks. So these are people that like experience depression, but they, their primary manifestation is actually like irritability and like anger. So they don't necessarily feel sad, but what they do is feel like incredible, incredible amounts of frustration. And it's also really interesting because if you look at pediatric presentations and adolescent presentations of depression, it appears that in pediatric populations, depression doesn't manifest as sad sadness. It manifests as moodiness and irritability. 
So it's kind of interesting because even in Western science, we're sort of figuring out, okay, there are these three types of depressions. But the really fascinating thing is Ayurveda actually says that if you take an independent disease process and you plug it into a person, you will manifest in three different ways depending on what the person's contribution is, okay? So when I go to a corporation, I'll say like, hey, I can teach your staff to be healthier and like work with each other more harmoniously. And the way that I can teach all that is by teaching you about Ayurveda because it'll help you understand your temperament. And once you understand your temperament, the way that your mind, your individual mind functions, it will become clear why there is workplace conflict. Because you'll have a vata who doesn't like structure and likes to innovate and likes to, you know, explore. And you'll have a kapha who's like, no, 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 we need like structure. Like we have processes for a reason. We are organized for a reason. Like, like when you stick to the processes, when you get the best result and the vata is like, let's go, let's figure it out. We'll figure it out. Don't worry, man. Like, why are you so stuck up, bro? Like what's going on? And the kapha is like, oh my God. Okay. So you'll get a lot of like workplace conflict because of doshik. Uh, differences. So what we're going to do is, is, <laughs> yeah, so anyone can be a bully. So what we're going to do is actually start with um, taking a look at um, a couple of posts. Okay. And w then what we're going to do is explain a little bit more about like how to approach Vata, Pitta and Kapha from sort of like a workplace setting. Um, and then what we'll do is like think a little bit about like workplace temperaments and job roles as they relate to combinations. Because people will ask like, if I'm a vata kapha, then what do I do? And so we'll sort of look at different job roles in which doshik kinds of people tend to operate well. And then lastly, we'll kind of explore, explore a couple of nuances of doshas. And then we'll have a meditation technique, which is sort of related to Ayurveda towards the end. Okay. Um, so one last thing about science, okay, for a second. So I got to say this. So at the beginning of what I'm going to explain to you guys, it is very scientifically valid. The further we go in today's teaching, the more we're going to leave science behind, okay? So it's we're going to start like very scientifically grounded, and I'll show you all a couple of papers which I've shown before. And then like the more that we get towards the corporate consulting side, I want you all to understand there have not been studies about the specificity of what I'm teaching. It's anecdotally very useful. People love it. People get better. I've certainly loved it. I think there is science there, but the studies have not reached that point, right? We're at the very basic level of studying Ayurveda scientifically, and it's been incredibly fascinating. But the closer we get to application, the more we're going to leave the solid foundation of evidence and sort of extrapolate from the evidence to come up with theories and conclusions. But a lot of the stuff that I'm going to teach you all towards the end, some of it has been actually verified through some personality assessments and things like that. But really, we're going to like leave the evidence behind and it's going to be a lot more like clinically focused. Okay. So, um, you know, just I, I want to just toss out that disclaimer. Okay. Questions? Yeah. So one of the things that we try to do, so I want you all to understand this, okay, about leaving science behind. So I'm a clinician. So I know it sounds kind of weird, but most of clinical medicine is not scientific. And it sounds kind of weird, but, you know, we have scientific trials, right? So we'll have trials that tell us, okay, this antidepressant you should use first, this antidepressant you should use next, this antidepressant you should use third. And when an actual human being comes into my office, there's a protocol of the standard of like what is, you know, on average the most effective. 
But what I want y'all to realize is that like on average, what may be the most effective is not very effective for like 40% of the population. Right. So the, the goal of clinical medicine is to take a scientific foundation, which is very well grounded and extrapolate it to an individual case. And if we want to be really precise about it, there are no randomized controlled trials about you. There is not a single randomized controlled trial that looks at what antidepressant will be effective in you. Right. I know it sounds kind of weird. All of the trials are what's effective on average. But if you think about where you are and where average is, there can be a big gap there, right? Like you are a very different person from the average person. Each of us has like a different height and you may be above average or below average. The other way to kind of think about it is if I'm a fashion consultant, I can look at data and I can say like, okay, on average, what do people wear? Okay, what's the average size? People are a medium. What's the average color? Okay, most people wear like blue. What's the average of what people wear? Okay, people wear are wearing this nowadays based on fashion trends. And all of those averages may not apply to you if you're four foot eleven or seven foot, right? Like we we want to cater to the individual and use a foundation of what science tells us. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So last point is I'm hearing a lot of people, you know, I saw one question that's like, I'm becoming more Vata. What do I do about it? So unfortunately today, the focus is not going to be what to do about your Vata. The focus today is going to be all of the people who are asking what kind of dosha am I and how can I understand my dosha? There's going to be a little bit less on the intervention side because what we really want to focus on is the nuance of like, like, you know, dual doshic people. And trying to understand that. Okay. So first we're, it's a little bit more of a diagnostic and explanatory as opposed to like, this is what you do about it. Um, so I apologize for that, but that's sort of why we have, anyway, it just occurred. Yeah. I can't teach everything all at once. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to do things in chunks. All right. So let's get started. Y'all okay with this chat? Is this good? Ah, what's the difference between Vata and ADHD? Okay. So save all your questions for the end. Okay. All right. Okay. So number one, your dosha is not your Pokemon type. Look, I get it. You found a new framework. You're very excited about it. You heard about a new structure for understanding the self. And your immediate impulse is something like, as long as I can figure this out, the best way to harness my guffa strengths and shore up my, the corresponding weaknesses, I'll be able to solve my problems. And maybe you will. Whatever works, works. And I'm not here to tell you that you need to abandon the idea for the sake of some sort of immortal truth. If categorizing yourself as a pitta somehow ameliorates your issues, there but for the grace of God go I. Have fun. What I'm trying to make clear is that dosha, uh, the dosha concept is not some rigorous definition of individual character. It is, like stated above, a framework for introspection. Like many other classifications of human personality types, it's primarily useful as a tool to get the individual to look inward and examine pathways that may not be obvious at first glance. Understanding your dosha, whatever that may mean, is not a solution in and of itself. It's only a tool to enhance self-exploration. More importantly, it's a tool that is only relevant to the person using it. Your classification is of minimal importance to the people around you. It's in an entirely personal concept. As a result, the people asking for advice on how to approach a situation as insert dosha type here are fundamentally misguided because this whole framework isn't going to provide you a solution. 
There's all sorts of solutions to all sorts of problems. And trying to peg an individualized solution to a dosha type, as though you're figuring out the best weaknesses to exploit in a Pokemon battle, is completely orthogonal to what you actually need. Framing your personal issues purely within the dosha framework is going to lead you astray because introspection doesn't solve problems. It helps you solve problems more effectively. The resolution is ultimately on you as an individual. The framework can't step into your place. Okay? Now, this is a wonderful post. I upvoted it, right? Loved the post. It's a fantastic post. And, unfortunately... There are huge swaths of it that are kind of wrong, okay? So let's take a look at this. So this person's argument is that there are a lot of systems of, let's look at this, okay? So um, like many other classifications of human personality types, it's primarily useful tool to get the individual to look inward and examine pathways that are not, that may not be obvious at a first glance. So this person is correct. In, in some of these fundamentals, okay? So, and like woefully incorrect in others. So let's try to understand what's correct about this and sort of what isn't, or my opinion on what isn't. So the first is, okay, we've got a lot of different personality types, right? Like what Hogwarts house are you? You know, what is, what's your Myers-Briggs type? Um, what's your balance on the five-factor model? And it, it's, it's good because even astrology, right? So like astrology can be useful as a framework for introspection. So this person is kind of coming from the stance that personality analyses are useful as frameworks for introspection. You can use it to guide your internal journey, you know, use as a tool to self to enhance self-exploration, and that that tool is only relevant to the person using it, right? So like if I'm big into astrology and like it I'm like, "Oh my god, I'm such a Libra, I'm such a Libra." Like no one else really cares whether I'm a Libra or not. I can still use Libra to help understand my own internal kind of perspective. Um, and, and that can be beneficial to me and I can still gain value out of it. And that's sort of, that's, that's absolutely true. Like this argument is like theoretically like spot on, right? So we even know from psychological research that astrology is essentially a projective test. So in psychology, there are certain tests, like the Rorschach or Inkblot test is the best example of this, that's a projective test. And so the value isn't, you know, that something is objectively correct, but that we can use particular things to help people understand and serve as frameworks for introspection. And that if you provide someone with a framework of introspection, the framework doesn't need to be objectively correct. The value is in the introspection. Okay, that's what this person's case is. And he's absolutely correct that in most situations of personality analysis, this happens to be true. As it turns out, Ayurveda is actually a little bit different. And the main reason for that is that Ayurveda is not just a system of introspection. It's something that is correlated to your genomics, right? So people have done studies which show that your doshic balance is not just something that you use for introspection, but can actually be genetically identified. So if we look at the spectrum of human beings, we realize that some people are more prone to experiencing anxiety, and some people are more prone to ulcers, and some people are more prone to anger. So if we look at human beings and we do a scientific study and we stress 100 people out, 33 of those people will become anxious as a response to the stress. 
33 of those people will become angry and irritable with response to those stress, and 33 people will become isolated and depressed with a response to those stress. Now, those numbers, I actually don't know if those are true or not, but the point is that we can make very real scientific observations about variances within the human population. And as we study Ayurveda, what we discover is that these, um, all of these variations which we can detect with people are actually like correlated to their genome, right? We can actually look at these people who all get anxious. We can look at their genome and see, oh, wow, all of the people who are prone to anxiety actually share common genes. Let me show you guys this, okay? So here's just an example of this. So like here, you know, you can say that, okay, so like there are three types of people. You can use this as a frame, uh, you know, an interest, uh, a framework for introspective introspection. But what's really interesting is that if you actually look at like, um, you know, papers that look at science, what you discover is that three basic genopsychosomatotypes or birth constitutions have different nuclear receptors, which are expected to regulate the expression of specific genes, thereby controlling embryonic development, adult homeostasis, and human metabolism of the human organism in a profound way. This is not a framework for introspection, my friend. This is something that has been scientifically shown to be baked into genes. Okay? So this is why I emphasize Ayurveda over astrology or so because i've studied a lot of stuff okay guys i've studied like vedic astrology not so much western astrology i learned how to read tarot cards i'm an energy healer i don't talk about any of that crap i'm also somewhat familiar with myers-briggs but i steered away from myers-briggs the reason i steered away from myers-briggs is because when i looked for evidence for it what i found is that there's the myers-briggs institute which publishes a lot of evidence, but there is very little independent verification of the Myers-Briggs model, which I have been able to find, okay? So like Ayurvedic genomics, establishing a genetic basis for mind-body typologies, right? So like this is kind of interesting. So there's a significant correlation between HLA type and Prakriti. That's really fascinating. So HLA types are sort of individual receptors on some of our immune, uh, on our cells, which immune cells recognize and stuff like that. But it actually, that HLA types, so these are things that are sort of like blood groups, right? That they actually correlate with Vata, Pitta, and Kapha. So it's sort of fascinating because I, I do think that, that where I disagree with this person is that Ayurveda is simply a framework for introspection. Now, some of the ways that we talk about it, we use it as framework for introspection. So in that sense, this person is absolutely correct. Because when I tell you guys, hey, this is what a vata is, this is what a pitta is, this is what a kapha is, I'm not doing genetic analysis on each and every one of you and sort of, you know, determining your Ayurvedic type. So in this sense, like we sort of, you know, we do use it like a Pokemon type, right? Like the way that I explain Ayurveda is from a sort of like take a personality test and it's what you identify with. So in that sense, our application of understanding Ayurvedic doshas are sort of a framework of, for introspection, which is exactly what this person is saying. And at the same time, I want everyone to understand that Ayurveda is not just a framework for introspection. The reason that we, that's the way we're using it, absolutely. But there is actually overwhelming evidence that Ayurveda is not 
like the other systems of personality. Because I don't know of any systems of personality that have done this much correlation to like genetics and sort of figuring out, okay, this personality type actually is developed due to a combination of genetics, gene expression, and embryonic environment. Like that is absolutely wild, chat. But there is a huge difference in my experience, between Ayurveda and other systems of personality analysis. So even if you look at things like the five-factor model, which are also systems of personality analysis that have been very well validated, I don't know, I haven't really looked at this because I'm not an expert in five-factor research because you can't be an expert in everything, unfortunately, but I don't know what degree of genetic correlation has been done with five-factor research and sort of like looking at people's genes. So this is kind of a it's, a, it's a fantastic post. And I think the person's, um, you, you know, like very correct about a lot of things. But I, I do think that this is where actually, in my experience, this is not the case. So more importantly, it's a tool that is only relevant to the person using it. And so we'll talk about this a little bit down the line. But like literally, I'll do consulting for corporations where it's not only relevant to the person using it. But when everyone in your team understands everyone's Ayurvedic dosha, it becomes very relevant. And this will become a little bit more clear once we get to the framework that I'm going to share with you guys today. But understanding that you're a vata and understanding that someone else is a kapha will help you change the way that your mind or realize which way your mind is defaulting to thinking and acknowledge someone else's default thought. And it actually really, really helps with like conflict resolution and team harmony. Once you realize what your Pokemon type is, which the person is fair to say that there, we don't really have good scientific ways of connecting the genetics to the Pokemon type. So we are sort of basically determining a Pokemon type. But I, I have kind of two important caveats, which is one is that like, it's not just a framework for introspection. That's how we're using it in these cases, absolutely. And it has all of the shortcomings of that. But it does appear that your Ayurvedic dosha actually correlates with genetics and other kinds of things, which we're, you know, I can go into more detail. But, you know, even for example, like some of my uh, Ayurvedic colleagues in India have been able to predict complications of COVID based on the dosha of, of the patient. So COVID is one thing, right? But whether this person uh, needs ICU stuff or they have cognitive stuff or they have GI symptoms from COVID appears to correlate with their Ayurvedic dosha, which is incredibly fascinating, right? So uh, unfortunately, studies haven't really been published on this yet. We'll see if they ever kind of get published. Um, but it, it does appear that like, you know, physicians are able to sort of predict, okay, does this person need to watch out for stroke? Does this person need to watch out for GI complications, cognitive complications, or respiratory complications? Because COVID can cause all kinds of random crap in random people. But if you really think about it, you know, I know it sounds kind of weird, but there's absolutely biology and science that leads to a complication of COVID. It's not random. It's not truly random, right? We just don't have an understanding of biology that's that's strong enough to where we can predict which kinds of complications are going to happen, happen with which people in Western medicine. So it's really fascinating. Okay, so um, <laughs> so this is also where, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of says that they're fundamentally misguided because this whole framework isn't going to provide you with a solution. And that's where I'd say like, you know, that's not something. So I'm going to say that I disagree, but this is where neither I am right, nor this person is right. You know, to really understand whether 
this framework will provide you with a solution or not is going to require data, right? So what really the way that we need to answer this question is we take, you know, a hundred, let's say, take 200 people in a workplace setting and, um, and we're, we're not really thinking about doing this study yet, but you know, I'm, I have multiple corporate clients and have some connections at academic institutions and stuff like that. So there, this study may arise within the next couple of years. And what we're going to do is is teach 100 people about their dosha, and we're going to have some kind of control group where you know we're not going to teach people about their dosha. And then the interesting thing is that we're, we can actually measure whether teaching people about their dosha actually leads to measurable effects, right? So it's not about my opinion or this person's opinion. This is absolutely a situation where like over time, I think the goal is going to be to actually measure and test some of these hypotheses. Because this statement, more importantly, it's it's a it's a tool that is only relevant to the person using it. That's a fair opinion. I have my fair opinion. I'm not saying, I mean, I believe I'm right and I believe this person is incorrect, but I can't really say that, right? The real money is going to be when we actually have an Ayurvedic intervention and whether we can actually measure some degree of change. Okay? Um, so... But generally speaking, I think that this person's sentiment is absolutely correct. That generally speaking, systems of personality analysis are useful as frameworks for introspection. And that the goal is to introspect, learn something about yourself, and then use that to solve problems more effectively. Like, I think that's absolutely a wonderful and reasonable logical change. And at the same time, I do believe that Ayurveda has scientific evidence which elevates it beyond just the system of framework of, for introspection. And the caveat to that is that what I'm going to teach you all today is absolutely closer to a framework of, for introspection than it is, uh, you know, like genetically verified, right? Because we're going to apply this, extrapolate this at more as a framework for introspection. Okay. Great. Fantastic post. Love it. And by the way, um, you know, I really hope that, so I, I want y'all to understand this. I love this post so much because our subreddit is not a place for Dr. K to be right. Our subreddit is absolutely a place for anyone to be right and anyone to be wrong. So someone, I, I sometimes post on the subreddit and someone like realized that like I, my, my response was Dr. K. And they're like, hey, man, you should have flair so that people know when you're talking. And I'm like, no, bro, I really should not. Right? So what's really great about that is that I rarely have the top comment on responses to the subreddit, which is absolutely the way that, that it's supposed to be. Right? We, this is not a post-reddit of Dr. K is right and everyone needs to know when Dr. K opens his mouth. I have a platform where I get to be right and everyone gets to listen to what I say. The point of the subreddit, I know it's shocking, chat. Uh, the point of the subreddit is that there are people out there who have better and more impactful responses than I do. And that's why the subreddit exists. It's a space for people to share awesome opinions like this, right? And it's a, it's a space where you guys can support each other. You can challenge each other. And like, it's not like my word is like the end all. I'm allowed to disagree with you. And there's sort of like an inherent power dynamic, right? Because Dr. K is saying you're wrong. But like, I really want to emphasize that this is exactly the kind of discussion we need because I may not, like, I'm not the arbiter of truth, chat. Like, I know a lot, but I'm not the arbiter of truth. And what I really love about the subreddit is that a lot of people post 
right? A lot of people discuss, a lot of people help each other out. And like, they actually do a better job of it than I do, which is like exactly what it's there for, right? We're a, we're a community that fosters gro like, you know, growth of each and every individual in the community. We're not actually like a Dr. K says it, so it must be true community. At least I don't think so. We joke about memeing about being a cult, but I think it's these meta-level discussions that keep us from becoming a cult. So it's fantastic. Love the post. Really appreciate this kind of discussion. Okay. Oh, no, I, I don't have water. Okay. Why don't you guys start reading this, and I'm going to go grab water. So HGG old heads will remember the classic lectures on the Vedic model of the mind. Vata, Pitta, and Kapha, three doshas. Okay. So the first thing to understand is the Vedic model of the mind is not Ayurveda. Those are different things, okay? But we'll get to that. Just a clarification. Um, so Vata being like wind, the mind constantly bouncing around between whatever grabs its attention. If a Vata plants 20, 20 trees, they may succeed at getting all of them to blossom, but struggle to give anyone enough attention to flourish. Pitta being like fire, burning intensely on whatever it's it's focused. They plant one tree, give it a constant attention, and care until they see the fruit, and then plant their next tree. Gaffa being like earth, moving slowly, but gradually building into something great. They might only ever plant one tree, but over many years cultivate it into something truly magnificent. I've tried to analyze myself using this framework, and I think I'm a pretty strong Vata-Gaffa hybrid, which I don't believe Dr. K has ever talked about. I've always learned new things very quickly and on a day-to-day -day basis I'm constantly bouncing around, obsessing about whatever grabs my attention. However, over the long term, I'm very slow-moving, resistant to change, and very attached to the trees I've planted. I find myself always coming back to the same handful of things, improving them at, at them in a short burst of time, moving on to something else, and then weeks or months later, when the wind pulls me back, sad and disappointed at how I've neglected it. This fuels the obsession once again, with much of the time spent playing catch-up, only to lose interest once I get a feeling of, okay, I think I've made up for the neglect, but what about my other trees? I'm now hesitant to ever commit to something entirely new, paralyzed by the anxiety of letting my oldest trees wither and die. Caught in an endless cycle of trying to maintain what I have, yet feeling like nothing I do will ever reach its full potential. This affects my relationships, my hobbies, my responsibilities, and my job. What should I do to play into my strengths and mitigate my weaknesses when there are so many, when they are so naturally in conflict? Beautiful, uh, beautiful post. Okay, now the lecture is about to begin. Chat. Okay. So the first problem is that when I teach Ayurveda, I tend to teach it as if vatas and kaphas are opposites. Right? If we think about wind and earth, we sort of think about them as opposites. But the truth is that vata and kapha are not opposites. They're actually like independent. Okay, And the idea that they are opposites um, comes from sort of essentially like a simplification of the doshas. So what we're going to do is explain in more detail how to understand your doshas. Okay, So for people who are new, let's start with the basics. Okay, so Ayurveda is a system of medicine that's about 5,000 years old that posits that not all people are the same and that each person has an elemental balance of three types, vata, pitta, and kapha. So vata is like the wind, 
Bitha is like fire, and Guffa is like earth. Okay, I know I said five, but let's focus on these three. That's another simplification. So what they sort of notice is that some people are like the wind. Their mind is very dynamic. They learn things very easily. They're quick studies, but they also forget things very easily. Kind of like the wind, they blow really hard in one direction and can die down kind of randomly, and then they can blow really hard in another direction. A lot of people um, sort of identify with Vata, especially because our society right now is very Vata-genic. So if you look at things like notifications and like the pace of society, our minds are becoming more dynamic. You have to deal with more stimuli and it's like becoming like, you know, stimulus overload. So all of our society makes people more Vata. Bittas are like fire. They're organized. They're focused. They discriminate, which means they tease apart things. They try to really like understand processes and they tend to be like ambitious and driven and focused. Our society currently rewards bittas. So if you think about school and you think about like promotions and things like that. So I saw a statistic that if you want to earn the highest salary, you should move jobs every two years. That generally speaking, if you stay at one company for a prolonged period of time, your promotion schedule is going to be slower than if you hop around. If you hop around too quickly, like a vata would, you won't earn as much. And if you stay around too long, like a kapha would, you won't earn as much. So our, our society tends to be like very like bitta rewarding, right? So we, we tend to emphasize and reward people who are like ambitious, driven, focused. Those are the things that we believe lead to success. And then you have the kapha types, which are stable, resilient, arguably slow, so they're like the earth, resistant to change, hard to move, but can be very, very dedicated to one thing. So it's really nice to be in a relationship with a Guffa person because the Guffa person, generally speaking, will be able to like tolerate a lot of your stuff. It can be very difficult to be a Guffa person because oftentimes you'll stay in situations longer than you should because of your high ability of tolerance, right? So the video gaming analogy that I use for Guffas is like, if I'm sitting in a pool of acid and I'm a vata, I get out of it really, really quickly because I have a low HP pool. And if you're a kapha, you can just kind of tank that damage for a while and it's like not a big deal. And even though you should leave, there's not a whole lot of like pressure for you to leave because your ability to withstand is pretty high. Okay? So quick, uh, you know, take on doshas. So what we tend to have is we've got vatas. So the way that it works, and this is determined by our genetics is that we have levels of vata, pitta, and kapha. So let's say here's the baseline. And any human being, based on their genetics, will have you know a vata that's up here, maybe a pitta that's down here, and then maybe a kapha that's like over here. Okay? So these are our natural levels that are genetically determined. We've seen good evidence of that. And then what happens, so this is called our prakruti. And then what happens is that based on our environment, based on our diet, based on other kinds of influential things, our levels can change. And that's called our vikruti. So let's say that my vata level is here. I, I force myself to go to a lot of like entrepreneurship and ambition and networking events. So my pitta is going to be kind of baseline. And um, since I'm sort of in a very technological society and I don't take care of myself well, my kapha is going to actually be reduced. Okay. So this is called Vikruti. And Vikruti is your current balance of your doshic elements that is can be altered, okay? So remember that 
And then what happens is if we kind of look at it, like let's say this is the threshold for illness. So if your Vikruti crosses this barrier, then you will manifest with illness. If your Vikruti crosses this barrier, you will manifest as illness. So someone earlier was asking about ADHD. So I have a very active and dynamic mind. And if I'm not careful, it gets to the point where like my active and dynamic mind, if I cross this threshold, with this, which it's very easy for me to do, I end up with like being so vata that it actually negatively impacts my life. So like, it's nice. Like I can juggle five balls, but if my vata like elevates too much and then I'm juggling 10 balls, then I start dropping them left and right. Okay. So that is an example of uh, prakruti, which is your genetic basis, and vikruti, which can be changed over time. Okay? So this is an overview of vata. So like, for example, vata elevations can result in ADHD or anxiety, right? When you cross the pitta threshold, you're going to get angry and you're going to snap at people. And when you cross the kapha threshold, you're going to be depressed. Okay? Now, the other interesting thing is let's take a look at depression, for example. All right, so let's say that here's our vata pitta kapha. And so let's say that I have an, a vata person, a pitta person, and a kapha person, okay? And then in each of these three people, if, if their kapha elevates over here, then I'll get an anxious depression. If this person's kapha elevates to over here, then I'll get depression with anger attacks. And if this person's kapha elevates to over here, which remember, we don't need a whole lot of, then this is neurovegetative depression. Do you guys see how that works? So depression is a kapha imbalance, but depending on what your prakruti is, it will manifest in a different way. And the really interesting thing is that there's decent science to support this. So like, we know there are three kinds of, um, you know, depressions. And we, don't, we haven't quite done the study. I actually published a paper about this, about how they... Huh? What? What is this? Why are you talking about me? Hack? Weird. Uh-oh. We deleted it all. What is happening? Okay, let's just start from the top. Okay. So, um, so essentially like depression can happen in any, um, uh, in any kind of person and depending on what kind of person they have, it'll manifest in a different way. Okay. So now what we're going to do, so that's just kind of basics of Ayurveda. Okay. So now what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the hybrids and the way that we're going to uh, uh, talk about the hybrids is we're going to actually refer to like work-related stuff. And this is where we're definitely going to go more towards the framework of introspection. There's less science to support this. So there's a ton of science to support the genetic stuff. There's a decent amount of science to support the clinical stuff. And now we're really getting into the place where there's very little science, okay? So I'd say about vatas is that they're innovators. Vittas are organizers. And... Kaphas are like structure oriented. Okay? So like what a vata does is just puts random things out there. What a pitta does is take these random things and like organize them into structure. 
Okay, so like we're going to organize this. And what a kafa is going to do is start off from the get-go by making things nice and structured. So like, I know it sounds kind of weird, but like, this may sound like the same thing, but it's fundamentally different. Like, I know it sounds kind of weird, but it just is. And we'll, we'll explain that later, okay? So let's kind of look at um, some combinations now, okay? So if I have a vata pitta person, so let's start with a straight vata. So these people are innovators. So they come up with ideas, but generally speaking, can't see them to fruition because they sort of lack an organizing component or structural component. So like a, a vata can be like a visionary. Okay, so like sometimes what, what you'll have, like sometimes actually CEOs can be vata. Um, but generally if they're, if they need, if they're vata, so this is the kind of corporate consulting that I'll do, you need like a strong bitta or a strong gaffa is a COO. So if you've got a CEO that's vata, you need to balance it with a COO that's either bitta or gaffa. Okay. And then you may say like, okay, what is a vata plus bitta? So the vata is like the inventor. Hey, I came up with this cool blockchain. Cool. The pitta, vata pitta hybrid is actually the entrepreneur. So if you think about it, like what's the difference between an innovator and an entrepreneur, right? So like the, the entrepreneur is someone who has the innovation capability, but also the ability to organize it. So like then you can actually like start a company, right? Because you've got that certain amount of ambition. You've got that drive. You can sort of organize your information, things like that. Whereas like, you know, if you're a pure vata, what you what you've got is like you're the guy who makes the discovery but you can't start the business. And then if we've got like, you know, another kind of pitta, so you also have like people who will so for example like the DOD kind of does this, right? Where the DOD will go around and find inventors. And what they'll do is like they'll take the invention and then they'll like turn it into a thing. Right? So you'll have people who will go out and like purchase patents. They're not the patent developer. Right. So this is also like another kind of entrepreneur, but it's sort of like, a, you know, let's call this the patent purchaser. So what they're going to do is come to people with inventions and we'll help you bring your invention to market. I'm good at the ambition. I'm good at like, you know, all this stuff. I'm going to kind of bring it to market, which is a little bit different because we're not quite innovating. And the entrepreneur sort of does like both of those pieces. Right. If you really look at successful entrepreneurs, they're usually you know, do both of the pieces or they find teams where they can, they can supplement like their weak points. Okay. So now let's get to some other kind of interesting things. So like, um, so let's look at Pitta Kapha. Okay. So the Pitta Kapha is sort of like an analyst. So what we're going to do is like look at this organizing information and we're going to kind of like develop a structure based on it. So like bit the kafas are like really, really good at analyzing data. Um, so they're, they're good at sort of like, you know, piecing things together and working well within structure. Um, the other kind of, oh, actually, sorry, sorry, this is wrong. This is actually a kafa pitta. So remember that you can have a primary and a secondary. Okay, and then a pitta kapha, so this is the other point to illustrate. So is a kapha pitta the same as a pitta kapha? And I'd say no. So a, a pitta kapha is a good strategic planner. So if you ask yourself, like, what's the difference between, like, an analyst and a strategic planner? 
All right, so bittas are going to kind of organize information and then sort of develop a strategy going forward. They're not just about creating structure for the sake of structure. They're sort of like, you know, like kind of forward thinking. And they're really good at sort of like creating a structure that we can build towards. Uh, pitta may be a little bit better at analysis. They're not so concerned about forward thinking. They're really thinking about, okay, how can we look at what we have that exists and sort of like analyze it and sort of like iterate or improve on it? And I know it's it, it, it sort of sounds kind of like this may be overlapping, and this is why we really are getting kind of away from science, but this is just sort of observationally like what I've seen, okay? And now we're going to get to the combo that people are talking about. So like what about a kapha vata? So I think kapha vatas excel at something like program development. So what does this mean? So if you look at program development, we're going to make something new. It requires some degree of innovation. But if you want to develop a program, it requires a certain amount of structure, right? Like you want the innovation, but you really need some kind of structure around it. So it's kind of interesting, but even if you look at like the Ayurvedic dosha of like the people who, you know, wind up in different places within Healthy Gamer, like our strongest program developers are like program development people actually have a healthy dose of vata and kapha. And so it's really fascinating. But when I go to a corporation, you kind of think about, okay, what do you need for program development? You don't necessarily need ambition. What you need is like, you're creating something new. So you need like this innovative kind of component, but you also need like a structural component. So I'm actually like good at some aspects of program development and I suck at other aspects. So I'm really good at sketching out ideas and coming up with the innovations but I'm very bad at creating the policies and procedures that are based on the innovation. So a really strong kapha vata is awesome because they can sort of innovate a little bit, but they can also create like the policies and procedures around that program when it's new. And if you look at something like a more kapha pitta, the kapha pitta will be a lot stronger, maybe not at quite developing them, but once we have them, analyze them to kind of see what's working and how to improve. Okay. So now what I'm going to do is, is kind of like just touch on, you know, a couple of other combinations and sort of help you all sort of understand like what kind of thought processes or approaches they have. Okay. So let's look at Vata Pittas. So <laughs> like kind of a spectrum. Okay. So let's look at the Vata. The Vata says, let's try it out. Let's see what happens. Okay, this is going to be kind of like, you know, now we're getting into the what Harry Potter type are you? What Pokemon are you? Okay. And then the Pitta says, let's try it out and measure it. Okay, like let's like organize. Let's not just see what happens and rely on intuition. Let's use analysis. Do you guys get the difference? Like some people, like I'm like this where, you know, so we're, we're thinking about how to improve particular things in Healthy Gamer because it's an ongoing process where we're trying to get better at stuff. And so my approach is like, I'm just going to go and like watch other coaches, for example. And that, and I'll rely on my intuition to tell me like what these people need to do differently. I'm not going to design a curriculum yet. I'm going to just go and like watch and rely on my intuition. And Vata Pittas are like, let go ahead, let's try it out, but let's make sure we measure it. Okay? And what about the Pitta Vata? 
So what the Pitavata says is, let's measure what we've got. and see what we should try. You guys see the difference here? Like the difference between a Vata Pitta and a Pitta Vata? Okay, because there's a huge difference. Like if you work with human beings, you will see that their cognition, literally the way their brain works, is gonna fall into these buckets. Like some people, like I know it sounds weird, but like I'm pretty sure that this is scientifically verifiable, okay? Some people are more intuitive. Like their approach to problem solving is like, I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And that pisses some people off so much. What do you mean we're gonna figure out? How are we going to figure it out? What methodology are you going to use to figure it out? What do you mean, man, we're going to figure it out? You can't just show up and figure it out. What if you don't figure it out? It's infuriating for them. Other people are like a little bit more about like analysis and measurement, right? Cool. Let's give it a shot, but let's be structured in the way that we're going to give it a shot. Right? That's totally fine. Like, let's try whitewater rafting. Let's do a little bit of research ahead of time and figure out, let's do one day of class one rapids, one day of class two rapids, and one day of class three rapids. And the Vata is just going to show up and he's like, hey, I'm, I'm here to whitewater raft. Let's go. And then the Pitta Vata will be like, okay, let me read about, let me read about class one rapids, class two rapids, and class three rapids. Okay, so it seems like class one you can do if you're nine and older, and we're all adults. So actually, why don't we try class two first? And if we like class two, or if it feels too easy for us, then we'll try class three. You know, it's kind of interesting, but like, I, I know it sounds weird, but different humans default to these different patterns. This is an observation that I'm like 99% sure if you tested and measured, and I'm pretty sure it has been in some way, so there's some like um, research on conation, for example, which sort of like verifies some of this stuff, um, that you will discover that different humans approach problems in different ways. And like, you can just observe that in your own life, right? Like you may just be like a, hey, let's just see what happens kind of person. And like your partner is sort of like, let's organize, you know, and, and then people are going to be kind of in the middle. So what, what this sort of indicates is that like when you when you understand like what you are, so this is like what, you know, different combinations of doshas look like. So it's not just like innovation or versus structure. It's not like those are, you know, mutually exclusive. They're actually like independent things. So like innovation plus structure. And then you kind of wind up with like someone who's like a good program developer, right? So they can innovate, but they're going to create a lot of structure around it. Um. So the next thing that we're going to talk about is, remember, we've got vata, pitta, and kapha, right? And then we've got the upper threshold and the lower threshold. So remember that vata likes to innovate. So what happens if your vata is down here? What happens if your pitta is down here? And what happens if your kapha is down here? So there is a difference between having low vata and high kapha. This is not the same. These are actually different things. 
So when we kind of, when we simplify it, what we say is that, okay, vat, like wind and earth are opposites. But the truth is that you can have a low level of wind or a high level of kapha, and those may appear to be the same, but they're not actually the same. They may overlap, but in, in actuality, the more you dig into the details, the more you'll see they're like nuanced perspectives here. So low vatas are resistant to change. Right? So you can say, oh, isn't that a kapha quality? Like, yeah, sort of. But you'll see kind of uh, differences, right? Um, so uh, low vatas are also tend to lack urgency. One of my favorites. Okay? So like, they're not prone to panic easily. And then they also have... Um, yeah, so they lack urgency, okay? So then you've got low kaphas. Right, so this person. And so low kaphas are going to avoid procedures. And they're going to fight the system. Right, so this is a, a good example of like, so I have some kapha. So the interesting thing is that I'm willing to jump in and innovate. That's my preference. I don't want to develop a structure ahead of time. But I'm not necessarily like resistant to the system for the sake of being resistant to the system. I will have some resistance to the system, but generally speaking, like I understand and see the value in systems. I think systems are fantastic. I just don't care to develop them myself. I'm like, that's great. You guys build the system. I think the system is fantastic. Whereas people who have very, very low kapha will be like actively resistant to the system. Because remember, this is the, the threshold of pathology, right? So below this is when we start to see negative impacts. So my kapha is over here, let's say. And so it's like, I still see the value of a system. I don't need to actively fight against it. But when, if my kapha gets drops kind of a little bit too low, then I'm going to be like, screw the system. The system sucks. I don't want to use the system. I want to be free. I want to be uncaged. And that also you can say, okay, doesn't that sound like very high vata? In a sense, yes, there's some overlap. But the more you get into the nuance, there's a difference between being high vata and not intuitively building a system versus actively resisting a system. Does that make sense? And then let's talk about Lopitas. So, um, so Lopitas have little attention to detail. And tend to not resolve complexities. They tend to like keep things disorganized. So now, like, you know, now it's getting kind of interesting, right? Because, like, I thought low vata was the opposite of, I mean, uh, high vata was the opposite of low kapha, but I'm super disorganized, and isn't that high vata? Well, it could be, because, you know, disorganization, much like, you know, vata kapha, like, there's a, there's a spectrum there, right? And so low pitta can actually have a spectrum. So this low pitta can have a spectrum with high kapha and a spectrum with high vata. You guys see that? So it's not like the two are actually opposite, which is sort of how I teach it in a simplistic sense. But the truth is that like the low level of that thing manifests in its own way. 
right? So like, and you may even say that, you know, low people who have like um, very low pitta have a pathologic, and you guys may know people like this, lack of anger, right? So low pitta, pittas are not, when we think about someone who is a doormat, we may think, okay, if this person has a high HP pool and they're a kapha and they're like, they're not going to move easily, maybe they're a doormat. You may think, okay, kapha is like, a doormat is a kapha imbalance. But being a doormat could be having a very low pitta. So like, you just have a pathologically low level of anger. And so you let people push you around because you, you're like not ambitious, right? You're, you're, you, have, you, lack, you have too little ambition, so you don't advocate for yourself. You don't fight for the promotion. And there could be cases of like low pitta and high kapha, in which case the problem is exacerbated. Um, but you could also have, you know, situations where like their kapha is okay and like their, their pittas, they're not like, you know, their kapha is actually within balance. And then they're the, really the pathology is low pitta. Okay. So this is sort of a more nuanced perspective. And what you really find is that, you know, human beings, if you look at our genetics, right? The genetics behind vata, pitta, and kapha are very complicated. So it's not like there's one vata gene, one pitta gene, and one kapha gene. There are thousands of different, or tens of thousands, or I don't even know really how many locations are, but there are tons and tons of locations, genes, and there are different alleles that may represent different levels of vata, pitta, and kapha. And so it's a whole symphony of genetic stuff that creates an individual balance. And in order to try to understand that from a heuristic perspective, which goes back to creating the framework, there is no such thing as vata, pitta, and kapha. It just correlates with your genes. So this is a simplified way of creating a framework for introspection. But it does appear to correlate with your actual genes. So now let's get to how do you determine what you are? Okay, so if I've left some of y'all in the dust, I apologize, but sorry, this is like, you really have to understand the basics. Um, so, an Ayurvedic physician does not take a quiz, right? That's not how they determine dosha. An Ayurvedic physician will do an actual, like, complete body and mind analysis of a person. So, for example, they will look at your tongue, and people who are vata dominant have a particular pattern of crap on their tongue. Bitha dominant will have a different pattern of crap, and Guffa dominant will have a different pattern of crap. Bittas, Vatas tend to have crooked teeth. Bittas tend to have back teeth that are yellow. Guffas tend to have like pretty organized and straight teeth. They will look at your hair, right? So like Bittas will have a receding hairline and be prone to baldness. Um, Vatas may have a full head of hair, but their hair will be kinky and wavy. Guffas will have sort of like smooth, straight, luxurious hair. They'll also look at your mental temperament. So under stress, do you respond when you're stressed out? Do you get anxious? Do you get angry? Do you get depressed? That's a component as well. They'll also look at things like your stools because the digestions of people are different. Vatas tend to be prone to um, hard stool and uh, constipation. Guffas will lay out really solid logs that can be like kind of a little bit on the wetter side. Bittas can have kind of like watery stools, mucousy stools, things like that. 
So it, it's kind of interesting. Like there's all kinds of different correlations, right? And if you think about what the Ayurvedic physicians were doing, and it sort of makes sense, right? Because your genes are going to affect a lot of different processes. So you have like a gene that's active in the mitochondria. And so if it affects your mitochondrial function, the result of that mitochondria in a gastrointestinal cell will create one effect. In a lung cell will create a different effect. And in your brain will create a third effect. And your skin will create a fourth effect, which is how we get to the fact that like they correlate Vata with skin, stool, right? Because this remember that there's this is a genetic basis, so it's not organ system dependent. Our, our, our system of science in the West is very organ system dependent. We think about the liver as being completely separate from the heart. But if you go on a deeper level and you look at the genetic level, there may be some kind of metabolic effects which are at the cellular or genetic level, which will manifest in different ways, depending on which organ you're looking at. And that's literally what Ayurvedic physicians do. It's fascinating. Okay? So how do you determine your dosha? A real Ayurvedic physician will look at all of these things, but one of the key things that they do, which works really well, is pulse diagnosis. So we're going to teach you this today. Okay? So what they'll do is look at your pulse. And your pulse has a lot more than rate and rhythm to it according to the Ayurvedic physicians. What they claim is that you can actually make correlations between your pulse and your dosha. So I know it sounds kind of weird, but we're going to teach you all this today. So like, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your left hand and I want you to take three fingers. So in Ayurveda, they say that the pulse should be checked in men on the right wrist and in women on the left wrist. I don't really know why. But we're gonna, I'm going to just teach you guys right wrist. I don't know what happens if you're transgender. I don't know. Um, so we're going to take three fingers. Okay, so you have your uh, index finger, your middle finger, and your ring finger. And what we're going to do is place it on the radial artery, which is right here. Okay? So what you're going to find, I don't like, this is like, you're going to be able to feel your, like, you guys know how you check your pulse right here, right? You feel over here. Okay. And you should be able to check your pulse. So the first thing that we're going to do, and this is going to be our meditation for the day, okay, is I want you guys to be able to feel your pulse at your radial artery with a single finger or right hand facing up. Okay. <laughs> so... Feel around a little bit. So what you'll feel is there's a bone right here. Let me see if I can show you. There's a bone right here. And right to the left, I mean, sorry. Yeah. To the left of the bone on your right hand is going to be where you can feel the pulse. Yeah. Move a little bit more proximal. So move towards the elbow. Okay. Full screen the bone. Okay. Let's see if we can find you guys. Okay. So here's your radial artery. Here's the radius. And the bone that you're going to feel is probably the head of the radius, which is right here. 
So this bump is what you're going to feel as the bone. And the, the radial artery is right next to it. Okay, let me see if I can find another. Here we go. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So here's the conventional radial artery, I suppose. Right? So it's like right here. So it's kind of like below your thenar eminence. So this fat part of your thumb... I've, it's been a while, guys. I'm a psychiatrist, so I don't do a whole lot of anatomy. But if, you know, medical school 11 years ago, rusty, thenar eminence, and if you kind of go beneath the thenar eminence, right, on the left side, like at the end of the thenar eminence, so if you look at my hand, like right here, like below this is the radial artery. You guys see, like, this is my thenar eminence? And then you kind of go below it. Okay. I know, chat. Listen, I didn't say today was going to be easy. Okay. We're, this is for advanced people. Okay. So what we're going to do is, and once you find the, the, the radial artery, then what we're going to do is we're going to take three fingers and we're going to put them kind of next to each other. And then what I want you guys to do is press on your radial artery so that you can feel all three. So you can feel the pulse under all three fingers. And what you're going to need to do is probably press a little bit harder on this finger. Oh, sorry, like harder on this finger, like a little harder on the middle finger. And then this finger can be quite light. So you're actually going to press down like this. So the least pressure over here, a little bit more pressure over here, and the most pressure over here. Okay? And then what I want you to do is pay attention to the feeling of your pulse. And what you'll see is that it's not uniform across all three. Okay? Don't need to apply lube. Don't press too hard. Just press, press just enough to feel it. Okay? And what you'll discover... I'll show you guys in a second. What you'll discover is that the pulse is not uniform. So one person may have a pulse like this. One person may have a pulse like this. One person may have a pulse like this. And so actually when people were, were teach pulse diagnosis, what they equate it to is animal gait. So there's a rabbit pulse. There's an ox pulse. There is a goat pulse. There is a deer pulse. There is a horse pulse. And what they're essentially doing is finding these different patterns of pulsation, right? So, or your pulse could be like this. And so what I want y'all to do for a few seconds is just close your eyes and see, snake pulse is actually one of them. And see if you can feel the pulse. Right? And this is where you may say, oh, okay, but like it feels the strongest with my ring finger. And so if you press down a little bit, that's why we're going to alter the pressure. And the pressure really shouldn't affect the pulse. I know it sounds bizarre. Um, just like other bizarre things. Did you know that how hard you breathe out, how forcefully you exhale does not affect the length of your exhalation. <laughs> it's crazy. 
um, you exhale the same the same distance every breath, no matter how hard you breathe. There's a lot of weird things about the body that the yogis discovered. So just close your eyes and feel the pulse, right? Feel where you feel it. And you may also notice that not every beat is the same. Okay. So the, um, I'm not sure if this is actually correct, but I'm using my ring finger on top, like closest to the edge of my hand. So the ring finger is closest to the thenar eminence in your palm. So it goes, so, okay. Yeah. So this is how I'm doing it. This is the ring finger, right? And this is the, the hand. So you can also do it, I mean, you could do it like this, but I'm, I'm doing it like this. It's hard to show. Oh my God, how can I show this? There we go. If that, you can see that. That's how I'm doing it. Okay. So, you know, it, it's kind of weird. I, I get it's a weird experience. So in terms of the meditation technique, here's how we can sort of use it as a dharana, right? So we don't know. I mean, I, I'm not qualified. I don't know pulse diagnosis. So I've, ha I've met some Ayurvedic physicians, for example, that can diagnose pregnancy in pulse diagnosis. It is wild. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's bizarre. Like they can accurately diagnose pregnancy through pulse diagnosis, which sounds unbelievable. Um, but... Uh, you know, I don't know pulse diagnosis. Um, but I, I do think that it can be a useful kind of like meditation, right? So it's a dharana. So like, remember that the goals of a dharana are to bring your attention to the present and sort of to be able to detect subtle things. So you may notice that, you know, in order to really feel the pulse, you have to find the right balance. Your, your fingers have to push just as much as you want them to, to feel it. And that, um... Uh, you also need to concentrate, right? Like if your mind is distracted, you're not going to be able to feel the subtle nuances. Um, yeah. Yeah, so how, how do we diagnose our dosha? So essentially these different patterns will result in different doshas. So I forget exactly what it is, but I think maybe the... Um, the vata pulse is closest to the... So if you have the, the strongest spike is near the wrist, your vata dominant. If it's in the middle, your pitta dominant. And if it's deeper in, your kapha... Uh, if it's closest to your shoulder, it's kapha dominant. I could be wrong. It's one, one way or the other. But I think that's just a very simple thing. I, I think the real people who understand pulse diagnosis will look at that pattern. And based on the pattern of the three things, they'll determine your dosha. Now, the tricky thing there is that if you look at it anatomically, the radial artery is the most superficial closest to the palm, which means that just like based on anatomy, you're gonna, everyone is going to feel the strongest pulse 
in uh, closest to the palm. So everyone will diagnose themselves as vata. But, and that's why you have to learn how to press with more force to balance the depth of the tissue. Right? So, yeah. And that's pulse diagnosis. So the, the, the question of, okay, how do I determine my dosha? We can give you questionnaires. Like, so to my knowledge, no questionnaire has actually been like scientifically validated in a very rigorous way. Um, you know, actual physicians will use different kinds of like features and they'll sort of be able to tell. So I, I'm like pretty decent at diagnosing people as like vata, pitta, and kapha. Um, but I, you know, my system has to do a lot with like bone structure, the prominence of veins on the back of your hand also will determine your dosha. Um, so like all of those factors, then you'll kind of see, okay, this person is like six predominantly vata, predominantly pitta, predominantly kapha. And I do believe that in our lifetime, we will have hopefully personalized genetic tests, which will tell you what your dosha is. Right? So, I, veins. So it's hard to see, but. So like, if you look at the veins, I guess it's hard to see this way, but. Um, or actually, just look at look at the my tendons. You guys see how my tendons are very visible when I flex my hand? Like, my hand is, like, thin. So, like, you can see the tendons, like, popping out, right? Like, this, so that's, like, it's a very vata hand because there's not, like, flesh or tissue over it. Those are tendons, but it's hard to see on camera with the veins. Oh, man, I wish I could. Here, let me just shoot this. So hard to see, but you guys see that? That's a vata hand. It's hard because I have to hold up my hand. And then when I hold it up, the veins start to sink in a little bit. Right? So like you'll have like thickness of different people's like hands. Like some people like you won't, they won't stick out. Right? And so if we think about it, um, So, so it's complicated because remember that the whole point, so once you, once we recognize that Ayurveda correlates with your genetics, your genes are in every cell and therefore your gen, your dosha will manifest in each part of your body or your being, right? And so depending on which alleles or at which locations, that's what will manifest in a particular like cell. So even my mind is predominantly vata, but I absolutely have some degree of pitta. And emotionally, I'm very kapha. So it's interesting because like emotionally, like I don't get upset easily. I thought that was due to my yogic training, but I recently spoke with an Ayurvedic colleague from mine and she's like, no, you're actually like, it's not your, it's not the yogic training. You're just emotionally kapha. I was like, damn, that's interesting. So it's interesting, right? Because each of these dimensions, each aspect of your body, your teeth, your bone structure, your hair, your eyes, um, so even like the amount of eyelid over the iris of your eye effect is correlated with your dosha, your stool, your, your digestion, your hunger, all of that stuff correlates with Ayurveda. So we've got a uh, time for a couple things. So we can do two options. One is I can teach y'all a little bit about conflict 
between different doshas. Um, and, or what we can do is, uh, oh, so another just simple example, or what we can do is just answer questions. And I'm leaning towards answering questions. Um, what did I want to say? I wanted to say something. Oh yeah. And the other thing is metabolism. Oh my God. Metabolism is so clearly, there are three buckets of people, right? So like, if you guys have heard the terms, um, ectomorph, endomorph, and mesomorph. These, like, this is, people have noticed that there are big-boned people and people with fast metabolisms. And you can feed both people the same stuff, and they, like, one will not gain weight and one will gain weight, right? So this is something that we've, like, observed and, like, there's been science, scientific exploration of the three met metabolic types, which is, like, yeah, Ayurveda's been saying that for thousands of years. Okay. Okay, let's do questions. Okay, what questions? Let me see actually real quick. Um, what about Vata Kapha? Okay. So people with high metabolisms or vatas, generally speaking, yes. So remember, when we say are vatas, any one part of your body does not determine your dosha, right? Like, so the doshic determinant is based on all of the aspects of your body. So you may have a vata metabolism, but may have like a kapha mind or like, you know, pitta veins. So the way that we determine is that like, you know, the more, the greater percentage of your genes that are vata, the higher number of vata features you'll have. Does that make sense? Uh, you missed kapha vata. What do you mean I missed kapha? I thought we talked about program development. So like, that's a good example of... Um, what, okay, so if you guys want to understand a vata kapha, so remember that there are different dimensions of it, okay? So like, um, you know, your metabolism or bone structure, so I've seen this a lot, where you'll have kapha body types with vata minds. So like, you can be big boned and have really, really bad ADHD, right? It's not like everyone who's big boned has depression. You can have really bad anxiety and, and be big boned. Um, so there's absolutely like vata kapha hybrids. Uh, I even said myself, like, so emotionally I'm very kapha where like, it's hard to get me to be really upset. So I tend to be like pretty tranquil in that way, but I, my mind is all over the place. Um, in terms of what's the counterpart to the dev? Oh, oh, what's, oh, I see. So, so the, the kapha vata is a program developer. And let me think about a vata kapha. Um, so I'd say like a vata kapha is like an innovator who also like uses a lot of structure. So not necessarily organizing, but like a, a, a vata kapha may be someone who is very structured in the way that they innovate, for example. Right? So even if you look at researchers... 
So there are different kinds of researchers, right? There are researchers who will form hypotheses based on intuition, and there were researchers who will form hypotheses based on data. So I'll go to an academic medical center and talk to a research lab, and you know, we'll see like Vata Gaffa conflicts within the lab, even though everyone's a researcher. So I, I think that like, you know, the Vata Gaffa, which one did I talk about? Yeah, so Gaffa Vata will be like a program developer. And like a Vata Gaffa will be someone who's like structurally focused or even like tools or methodology focused, but still be like innovating. So they may be all about, so even like this, uh, you know, so I think if you wanted to develop a system of Ayurvedic personality analysis, I think a Vata Kapha would be a really good person for it, right? Because they're, they're going to be thinking a little bit about how do I create this structure for systematically assessing a relatively new concept. Does that help? Do animals have doshas? Yes. So this is the other interesting thing. Ayurvedic physicians are veterinarians. There's no difference. It's neat. They'll prescribe medicine to pet snakes. They'll treat cows for illness. No difference. They're trained in it. I don't know about nowadays, but historically, like if you go to like Indian villages, right, and there's like a, a village doctor, they will treat your goat, and they will treat your child. If you th kind of think about it, right? Like, I mean, like, I was thinking about doing a little bit of veterinary medicine, you know, doing a little pet therapy. We prescribe SSRIs, apparently, to, like, dogs with anxiety now, right? Part of my therapy practice is cats. They show up for their hourly appointment once a week. You know, I sit down, they lay down on the Freudian couch. We do a little bit of psychoanalysis. They feel better about themselves. It's great. Pet therapy is a thing, chat. As is pet antidepressant and anti-anxiety medication. So probably within our lifetime, we'll also see veterinary psychiatrists. Right? Because you could actually die. You can diagnose there are dogs who are on SSRIs. Because if you think about it, you know, what's really like, so if, you know, if, I, if a dog has a staph infection and I have a staph infection, antibiotics is both of it. Like we know that dogs get cancer, right? Like we know that dogs get heart disease. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's like, my mom's dog takes Prozac. Yeah. It blows my mind, but Yeah. Ah, what about people who have the same amount of each dosha? So there are, that's a great, great question. So this is where, once again, not really scientifically based now, okay, but more from corporate consulting. Y'all may notice that there are people in your social circles or group projects or whatever who are essentially like mediators. And they'll kind of like tap into whatever is deficient. So, you know, like, like the, the thry doshic person is the bard, from D&D. They do a little bit of everything. They're not the best spellcaster. They're not the best warrior. They've got a couple of thief skills, 
And I think even in 5, 5e, they can even cast a little bit, right? They've got some, like, divine spells and some, like, arcane spells. So, like, there are people like that. Like, in your social circles, there'll be, like, you know, the one person who organizes your parties. And when that person isn't around, someone steps up. There's the one person who's sort of like the sympathetic listener and good friend. And when they're, when, that not, when they're not around, this other person steps up. They're sort of the druids from WoW, right? Like, I've got cat druid, I've got bear form, I've got healing druid, and I've got moonkin. I can change shape and sort of tap into whatever role is necessary. And, and some people may think, well, isn't that what you want? And the answer is like, not really, because if you get, you know, a bunch of druids, you're not going to get, like, if you have a party full of bards, like, it's not necessarily more effective or even as effective as like a party where you've got like a fighter, a wizard, a cleric, and a rogue, right? Sometimes you want specialization and sometimes you want the glue that gets all the pieces to stick together. Right? So when someone's saying no DPS, no, like bards can do some DPS, right? So Thrydoshic people can do everything to a decent degree. But, you know, I don't know that they'll be like brilliant, you know, in innovators or develop the best structure. They kind of supplement, they're kind of hybrid classes. Yeah, Jack of all trades, master of none is the Thrydoshic person. So the, the reason I call them mediators, the, the real benefit of, of um, Thrydoshic people is not so much in the highs, it's actually in the absence of lows. That's what makes them so good on a team. They're like, you know, the lubricant for the team. Because the Thrydoshic people are not resistant to change, they're not resistant to structure, and they're not resistant to, like, organization. So, like, they don't get into trouble with anyone. I mean, they can still be, you know, like, mean and stuff, but they don't have, like, the, the workplace kind of conflicts. Where So, like, we have this all the time. We're like, you know, I'm Vata, so one of the biggest challenges here at HG is, like, I will have an idea, and I will say, like, hey, chat, let's do this. And then everyone's like, oh, my God, now we actually have to make that happen. And there's a whole team that's like, you can't go around just promising things to chat because we have to make that happen. Um, and, and so, you know, there, there are advantages and disadvantages of each one. And a lot of our conflict and a lot of our conflict resolution has been figuring out like how I can work with the more Bitha people and how I can work with the more Guffa people, which I absolutely need because y'all may know this, but if you have a party full of Vatas, it's like everyone's got brilliant ideas and nothing ever gets done. Is laziness tied to Dosha? Not really. So this is where, you know, there's another concept which we haven't really explained, which is gunas. Um, so I think we're going to actually talk a little bit about this maybe on Monday. Uh, but we're going to give you guys a slightly different perspective on motivation. So we think about laziness as a trait, right? It's an aspect of your personality. So like a person is lazy. We don't think about laziness as a fluctuating state in our conception, but in, in reality, it absolutely is, right? There are some days that you're more lazy than other days. And so what that actually comes down to, the best explanation of the, the state of laziness, which I think Western science is very poor at, like we don't, like, you know, we think about laziness in terms of things like five-factor model, where it's like high conscientiousness or low conscientiousness. It's an aspect of your personality. 
Whereas like all you have to do to be less lazy or more lazy is change your diet. And you all know this. Like if I eat six slices of pizza and have a couple beers, what happens to my motivation? Right? Whereas if I'm like eating food that's healthy, if I start to exercise, things like that, I'm going to feel more motivated. And that has to do with a concept in, in kind of Eastern thinking called the gunas. So there are three gunas. There's sattvas, rajas, and tamas. Sattvas is the quality that makes us balanced and clean. Rajas is the quality that makes us active and passionate. And tamas is the, the quality that makes us dull and inert. And our society is overwhelmingly has tamasic influences and vata influences. So as a society, we are over where our vata is elevated and our tamas is elevated. So we tend to be like a little bit like it's hard for us to do stuff. And if we look at things like Twitter, the primary Twitter is very rajasic. So like Twitter like gets people riled up, right? It doesn't make people calm. It gets people like kind of riled up. And so in the Ayurvedic treatment of depression, part of that is if you've got a thamsic disturbance, you actually want to engage rajas first. So you want to bring out people's activity and passion. And once you have a nice balance between inertia and passion, then you can become calm. So anyway, we'll talk more about this on Monday. Last questions. Will there be a stream on more spiritual stuff like karma? Absolutely. So this is the challenge that we have. I don't know what y'all thought about this, I guess. Oh, okay, so I, not, not that low. But so here's the challenge with stream is I can teach this advanced stuff about Ayurveda and like I don't know what percentage of people will be left behind. So the real challenge on stream is that people come in and out and that a lot of people may not have the sufficient prereqs. This is why it is hard to teach advanced or nuanced concepts on stream. So this is why we like do things like interviews and Q&A because we all start in the same place. Like when someone shows up on stream, I have no idea what they're going to talk about. Um, and so we're all starting together, which makes it a good experience for everyone involved. In terms of Q&A, we're also starting together, right? We all see the question and I'm going to answer it. So we're all in the same place. Um, when it comes to advanced concepts, what we're doing, so I'd say like, you know, did you understand this? If you guys watch stream on Wednesday, did you understand it? I'd guess that more people would be, you know, in the yes column. Um, and yeah, so people who come in later are screwed, right? So that's, that's where if we think about advantages and disadvantages of stream, Stream is a very, like, Vata-oriented platform, right? It's live. It's dynamic. There's interaction. Chat is spamming you during streaming. People are coming in. People are going out. It's very different from a lecture that has a start time. And so, like, there are some kinds of teaching which work better in Vata environments, right? Like, Socratic teaching works really well. I can ask y'all questions. You can ask me questions. It's live. It's organic. It's, it's fun. And then that's why we made Dr. K's guide, because it's not ideal for everything. So if you guys want to learn about mantra and spirituality and stuff like that, you have to start at the, at the basics. What is the nature of the universe? Because unless you understand the nature of the universe, how a mantra works is, is going to be like you're going to be missing something, right? 
um, if you want to understand karma, like, okay, what is like, what are the assumptions of like the meditative worldview? Like, how does, how do the yogis view the world? And then you can understand karma. If you want to understand things like spiritual experience, like you have to understand like, okay, what is a spiritual experience? It depends on what a person is, what the, what the world is, what the universe is. Then you can understand the spiritual experience in the right context. Um, so I, I think that's kind of the challenge. So I think for a lot of these questions, and I, this is what we try to do. So, you, you know, we made a guide because it's start to finish. It's a ton of start to finish information about Ayurveda. Uh, the challenge on stream is we've been talking for two hours and I haven't given anyone a solution yet because it's like hard to do every, like I can't do everything on stream. And the problem with doing everything on stream, you're like, yeah, but like you can, but not really because if someone's coming into stream now, and I start giving solutions and they haven't heard the first two hours, they're going to have even no idea what we're talking about. So the effective way to, um, you know, teach like sort of depends. Like we want to use stream for particular things. Dr. K's guide is like, it's going to, we're going to explain what Ayurveda is kind of like we did today, but we also don't want to restrict that information to Dr. K's guide, right? So we taught advanced concepts of Ayurveda. So like there are things that we taught today that aren't in Dr. K's guide. So I encourage y'all to, you know, like check out the guide, like look at the intro to Ayurveda. We also have a lot of dietary guidance and things like that, where we'll tell you, okay, Dr. K, great. I'm a Vata Kapha and I'm out of balance. What do I do about it? That's going to be in Dr. K's guide. And if you buy Dr. K's guide and you kind of check it out and then you're kind of wondering like, okay, how can I understand like these doshic balances, like come back and, and watch this YouTube video. Uh, tentative drop date is August 18th. Someone's been asking, what do I think about homeopathy? So I think homeopathy has less biological plausibility than Ayurveda. Uh, there's a reason why I chose to study Ayurveda instead of homeopathy. The clinical evidence is like mixed. Um, I, I, I don't put a whole lot of stock into it. It's kind of bizarre, but there is some clinical evidence behind it. But the, the scientific plausibility is just really makes no sense. Which doesn't mean that it isn't true. It could mean that we don't really understand as much, right? So for thousands of years, or like not thousands of years, but, you know, 60 years ago, medical professionals did not understand the mechanism. They didn't see a way in which meditation could be used as a treatment for depression. They didn't understand. I don't understand. Like you have to talk to people's feelings to make them feel better. I don't understand how sitting down and chanting Om for 30 minutes is going to help someone's depression. There's no like psychology. Like, Freud would have been confused, right? Because he's like, where's the Oedipal complex? Where's the oral phase? Where's the anal phase? Where's the phallic phase? It's an understanding of these things and dealing with these issues that helps you treat depression. How on earth could sitting there and chanting something for 30 minutes treat depression? So just because science does not understand something does not mean it is not real. Um... It just means that we don't understand it, which is something that scientists tend to forget a lot, right? So there's like a camp of people who say that there, once something becomes verified, it becomes medicine, and therefore medicine is defined as what works. And if it is not medicine, then it is alternative medicine, and alternative medicine doesn't work. Once you study something, you, once you study alternative medicine and you verify that it works— it becomes medicine. Therefore, medicine is defined by what works. So this is a common argument for people who are like kind of anti-alternative medicine, right? They're like, medicine is what works. 
And so my question is, if we go back 100 years and people were meditating for depression, is it a part of medicine or not? Because we have no scientific evidence that it works. So then it's not a part of medicine, right? And then the question becomes, if it's not a part of medicine, did meditation help people with depression 100 years ago? And the answer to that question is yes, which then means that alternative medicine works. So like the whole argument kind of falls apart. So this is where we kind of, when we go back to homeopathy, like I don't see a whole lot of biological plausibility. I don't think that the treatments, the evidence that I've seen for homeopathy is not as strong as it is for Ayurveda. Like for example, you know, ashwagandha is an Ayurvedic herb that has been shown to, um, you know, clear beta amyloid, which is one of the things that causes dementia from the brain. And like Ayurvedic folks have been using ashwagandha for like neurological health and psychological health for thousands of years. And so we have like scientific verification of their methods. Whereas the problem with homeopathy, for those of you who don't know, is they like do serial dilutions. So what they do is like, they'll, I'm going to take like, you know, a drop of ashwagandha and put it in a hundred drops of water and shake it around. So dilute the ashwagandha to be like one part in a hundred. And then I'm going to take one drop of that solution and put it in another vial of water. So then it's going to be like one in 10,000. And then I'm going to take one drop of that dilute solution and I'm going to put it in another solution. And then it's going to be like one part per million of the biological compound. And then they administer that as medicine and claim that there's a therapeutic benefit. So there are some trials that show that homeopathic remedies are effective. Like I've seen, you know, homeopathic remedies for, you know, like, um, you know, I reviewed a paper about homeopathic remedies for uh, a benign prostate hyperplasia, BPH. And it seemed like their stuff was effective. Like people saw a reduction in symptoms and it seemed like it worked. It's just, I don't understand the biological plausibility. So I think the evidence is not as strong. I don't think that the biological plausibility is really there. So, you know. Any tips for Pitta Kaffas? Yeah, so when it comes to tips, so this is where there's like a whole other section, right? So like the next phase of this is like conflict resolution and like tips and understanding your dosha and stuff like that. So for Pitta Kaffas, you know, the, the biggest gap that you have is in terms of like innovation and being dynamic, right? So the conflict that you're going to have is with people who are more dynamic than you are, who like want to deal. So like the, the strategic planner, the Pitta, I'm going to look at the data, I'm going to organize it, we're going to come up with a plan, and we're going to stick to the plan. So the biggest problem that bittas run into is that once they've gone through their process, it's really hard to get them to change. And sometimes they can become too attached to their ideas, right? Like once we've got a plan, like don't disturb it, even if it's bad. And the vatas over there are saying, bro, this isn't working. Bro, this isn't working. Bro, this isn't working. We see this in corporations all the time, Okay. So like we see this with, um, like I think a lot of these catastrophic failures with corporations are like classic examples of like Bitta Kaffa's gone wild. So what you'll have is like you'll have a corporation that goes through a lot of investment to come up with a plan. Like we're going to launch Coke 2.0. And then like each step of the way, there are people who are like 
or actually, you know, maybe like cyberpunk is another good example. So like, I, I don't actually know, because I, I don't know the inside of, uh, you know, CD Projekt Red, but like sometimes you'll have these catastrophic launches, right? And then everyone's scratching there, uh, sitting there and like asking themselves, how could this company that does such a good job launch such a catastrophic, create such a catastrophic mess? And what happens is that all along the way, you've got the Pitakafa energy, which is like, here's our strategy. We did a good job. We did our due diligence. We hired consultants. They said it was going to be okay. Let's move forward. And then as they move down the process, there are Vata people in the company who are like, hey, I think we need to change things. Hey, I think we need to change things. Hey, like the data that we're getting is actually not great. Hey, this is not going well. But the energy of the company is Pitakafa. So like, this is the plan. We strategized it. We're sticking to it. These are the naysayers. This person isn't aligned with our vision. This person isn't going to get promoted, right? Because they're like all these promotion kind of things where like, even if you know that something's wrong, you can't be like, it's like absolutely kill the messenger. So you, no one wants to be the messenger. And some guy at the top is like, this is my vision. It's going to increase profits 20%. And the board is like, do it. And then what happens is they go back and they tell their, their employees, they're like, institute my vision. And everyone's like, yes. And then they ask, how are things going? And then the manager goes to the associate and he's like, hey, don't tell anyone that everything is a fucking mess. It'll disrupt the plan. People won't like it. Kill the messenger. So we're just going to say everything's okay. And then... There were a thousand things in hindsight that went wrong. And the CEO at the top is like, this is going to be great because everyone's thinking, telling me it's going to be great. Catastrophic failure. And then the CEO is like, how could this happen? How could y'all let this happen? I was told everything was okay. I was told everything was going to be great. And it's because there's no room for that Vata energy with strategic planning gone. That strategic planning gone wild. Right? So the tip is to be aware that you can invest a lot into your strategic plan and listen to people that piss you off when they say, hey, maybe this is not a great idea. That is the tip for Pittakafas. Listen to people who piss you off. Okay? So someone's asking, why do Vatas have a tendency to make jokes all the time, or is it just me? So there are multiple layers of this question, right? So we can take a Western psychology perspective. This is why I love this question. It's such a great question. We can take a Western psychology perspective, and we can say, you make jokes because it's a defensive mechanism. You have difficulty tolerating internal negative emotion. So we're going to lighten the mood, and you can't sit with tension. So we're going to make a joke as a defense mechanism. The defense mechanism can be personal in your head, or it can even be a defense mechanism in the group right? That's why we make jokes. There's an Ayurvedic perspective. Why do Vata's make more jokes? Because Vata's minds are bouncing all over the place. So Vata's tend to be witty. And even if you look at different comedians, right? Like you can see the variance of doshas within different comedians. Some comedians are like, have a very clear vision of where they're starting and where they're ending. And they make it seem casual, but it's very well crafted. Some 
you know, comedians are, are very guffa, right? So they'll even be like super like structured, um, and which may sound a little bit like Pitta comedians, but then you'll have Vata comedians who are like, you know, they're the ones, like some comedians will re laugh regularly at their own jokes before they hit the punchline. They'll lose it on stage, right? So there's a touch of the Vata in terms of like the dynamicness and the wittiness, the audience participation, you know. So, so Dave Chappelle, I can't comment on individual people, so I'm, I'm going to steer clear of that. Ah, so when they say old Dave Chappelle is Vata, like that's very smart, right? Because Dave Chappelle's, his comedy has changed. It's evolved. Right? And then like, like I think uh, Mitch Hedberg has a very, I'm not going to comment on what he is, but if you all know Mitch Hedberg, he has a very Vata Guffa style of comedy. Right? Like, it's kind of like random ass thoughts. But actually, like, really, like, chill and structured. He's not really witty, but it's, like, really random. I don't know who my cock is. Can you become more Pitta Kapha if you're Vata? Absolutely. So remember that you can lower your Vata and you can increase your Pitta and Kapha through particular exercises and diets. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, chat. GG, get wrecked. Get wrecked, Dr. K. <laughs> oh fuck. Oh man, I did not I did not expect that. That's good, chat. That's good. <laughs> okay, so last thing that we're gonna do is our boy. Or girl, I don't know what the gender is. Our homie, Tram Rant, one of the greatest meme lords of the internet, has made another video. So now that we've owned Dr. K, we can just, you guys can just, you know, we can just stick with that theme. Okay? Here we go. I don't think it's like an issue. I don't think it impairs your function. I don't think it's a problem. I'm perfect. The problem's you. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> so the first thing is, are you stupid? I, I wouldn't know. That makes you stupid. Is that a bad thing? <laughs> Everyone's like, how can this person be so stupid? <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't realize things were that bad. But... Okay. <laughs> Fucking dumb. <laughs> oh my God. Can I just think for a second and try to figure out how to say this? Yeah, go ahead. What are, you, what are you thinking right now? I was just, uh, I forgot. Like, that's what, you can't even remember what you were talking about now. Yeah, I forgot. Give me a second. All you're doing is opening and closing your fucking eyes. What do you mean by that? It's not going to alter wildly in the span of 90 seconds, whether you're doing this or doing this. Um, so what can I do? What should I do? What do you think? I mean... Yeah, I don't even know what to think about that. I, I don't know either. So can I think for a second? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. This actually sounds like a conversation, like a real conversation.
Ooh. Oh my god. What was that ooh? <laughs> that was epic. Oh my god. I Dr. cannot. Hey, what do you struggle with? Your AOE. Oh, oh, no. Quiet, YouTube. Okay, yeah, let's send you the link. So, I don't know if y'all know this, but, you know, we have tons... Oh, God, am I lagging? What is going on? I can't post. My chat is frozen. Need to update Streamlabs, man. This shit's getting buggy. Okay. <clears throat> Let me just tell you guys what the... Um, maybe someone else can post it. I'm trying to. I, I can't type in chat. Hold on. There we go. Works. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I'm just amazed. And I can't believe that they can stitch together, like, because it's not like 16 conversations. It's just two conversations that they're stitching together. It's brilliant. Like, you know, we had, uh, I mean, we just have so many brilliant people in our community. It's amazing. Truly amazing. Like, this is hilarious. Um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I imagine it's objectively funny. It's not just because it's me, but I think it's brilliant. And we've got, like, good artists. Like, people will post things on the Reddit about, like, you know, art, you know, they'll make pictures and stuff. And then we've got folks who are, like, musicians. Like, there's some, I think there's, like, a Healthy Gamer Beat, Healthy Beats Collective, I think is what they're called. And they have like a, you know, they made an album and it's like, I think, I think they maybe hang out on Discord or something. I'm not even sure exactly where they come from. But they've got an album on SoundCloud, which is actually pretty dope. Um, and it, it's great. Like we've got, uh, you know, we had someone post on, on, um, on our Reddit who like compiled resources for students. We had someone else post who's a therapist who is kind of like talking about you know, like analyzing what I do on stream and stuff, which was fantastic. They were sort of talking about what I do well and like, you know, other kinds of like, you know, I, I don't think they were very critical, but I think they had a lot of good like feedback and, and helping people understand like some of the luxuries that I have on stream. There's a lot of just super thoughtful people out there. Um, even the person who, you know, made the post about the Dosha is not the Pokemon type. Like, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in this community. And uh, I think it's really fantastic. Like one of my favorite things about this work is the fact that it's like, you know, there's, there's space for other people to shine. Right. And so I'd say like, like Tram Rant, there's like comedy genius in there.